It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, analyse one of the main problems with Russian battle tanks, and we interview the independent activist Val Voschevska on her work and her recent journey back to Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Where Ukraine is. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 19th of August, day 177. And today, I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and our guest, Val Vostrevska. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been fairly active 24 hours in Crimea and in the um, in the east of the east of the country. So there's a number of blasts. We think at least four blasts reported in Crimea at the Belbek Air Base, which is just north of the Black Sea Fleet port of Sevastopol. That looks to be in a similar vein to the attacks we've seen in, in recent days. No attribution yet. I'll come on to I've just been in a in a a background brief with a Western official. I'll talk about what he said briefly, uh, shortly, but um, no attribution yet for that, for those attacks. There's also some confusion. There are other reported blasts. There's images on social media of of very uh, very large fires and explosions in um, the Belgorod Oblast. So Belgorod is a town about 50 k's north of Kharkiv. So inside Russia um, is, is the Belgorod town. And in the Belgorod region, there seem to have been two, two other reported blasts up there, an ammunition dump, and there's reports even of an air base, but we're not sure about that. But those, so those are, are unconfirmed. The blasts in Crimea do, do seem to be confirmed. They were, they were referred to by the uh, Western officials. So we think that is, that has happened. As I say, as for attribution, we're not sure, although um, the, the Western official was, was talking about these, um, these attacks and, uh, and saying there's a certain, quote, ambiguity, unquote, about the attacks. He says it's assume, uh, uh, correct to assume it's some form of Ukrainian activity behind uh, enemy lines, behind Russian lines. Uh, and he said, that the Western official said that what we've seen in recent days is the, app- this is a quote, application of novel capabilities by brave people operating behind enemy lines. So interesting there. 
uh, unquote. So for me, interesting, not only referring to the brave people operating behind enemy lines, because yeah, we long suspected it. We've, we've had, suppose, Ukrainian officials talking to the New York Times saying that it was special forces, but no one's actually kind of come out and, and said it. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with the convention. I'm talking about a, a Western official. I'm not going to say who, who he or she was, but interesting to have this, this, um, for me and you you can choose to believe me or not if you wish but i i know who the western official is and i i then choose to believe that if they say that there are brave people operating behind enemy lines there are but you know you can take your own view on that but the other part of that that comment there about the novel capabilities i thought that was an interesting interesting phrase so maybe the the suggestion that there have been loitering munitions or some form of of drone activity either as well as or instead of ground forces i think we can discount partisans so we're kind of talking special forces that has been mentioned that has been muted so maybe there's some kind of drone activity loitering and loitering munitions but um it looks like it's firming up this idea that there were um there are ukrainian um special forces as in militarized not partisan activity going on there um elsewhere again confusing reports but it looks like there was some activity last night around the kirsch bridge so this is the bridge to the east of crimea linking back to to the russian uh into the russian mainland there it looks like there's a lot of russian air defense fire in response to what we don't know um confusing reports that there there were some explosions i think i I've, i've not seen any evidence of that i've only seen it in print and i think these these explosions may have been the blast of the air defense missiles going off now whether that was reacting to drones or some other uh, it doesn't look like munitions were coming in but if it was drones that again is quite interesting because is this a reconnaissance mission by ukraine or actually think about it a very very cheap way of getting russian air defense systems to light themselves up and reveal their positions use their use their um, increasingly precious uh, ammunition so we don't know what's happening at the Kursk bridge we don't know what's happening inside Belgorod or in Belgorod inside Russia, but there do seem to be, uh, we can confirm there are those blasts in Crimea. Um, I'll just take a little pause there before, before coming back. Thanks very much, Dom. Just, I've just got one question for you, actually. Um, it was an, on our notes for the other day. It was a note from the British Ministry of Defence that said uh, that, that it, had a, it wondered about an explanation for why the Russian military forces have been losing so many tanks. And they said it was potentially down to um, the, the faulty ERA protection on the tanks. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What do they mean? Yeah, so this came out of, I think it was either yesterday's, yesterday or Wednesday's defence intelligence brief from the British Ministry of Defence, talking about how Russian ERA has been possibly to blame for a lot of the loss of the tanks. Now, ERA is explosive reactive armour. These are the big boxes, the kind of shoebox size things you see bolted on to the outside, mainly of the turret of a tank, but also over the, the front the front of the hull as well. Um, they're, they're kind of, they used to be referred to as armadillo armour. It looks like, that makes the tank look like, a, like an armadillo, look like armadillo shell. But explosive reactive armour are, are boxes with basically um, two uh, very, very heavy metal plates with a load of explosive in the middle broadly I, you know please please bash me on the dms if i've got the if i've got the sort of chemistry wrong but essentially that's it because what happens is when a round fired at a tank um if there is no if there is no era and you've just got the metal hull of the of the uh, of the tank or the turret that the round will, will hit that and and hopefully penetrate that and get into and through ideally through the turret through the through the other side so what era does is when the round hits it it is a blast and it seeks to 
push away, physically push away the incoming round. So a round hits the ERA and then then there's a rapid explosion from the box and it and it blasts. There's a there's a plate against the hull or against the turret so that so it doesn't actually you, know, you don't damage yourself, but it pushes away the projectile that's coming in. Now, what we're seeing is in the T-72 turret throwing competition that we've been watching for the last six months. So many of these turrets are landing and um, they've, they've got their ERA boxes intact. So either they're not working or there's the suggestion that they they've just not been maintained properly. They don't work. They're very old. The explosive either doesn't work at all or has possibly been sold by. Um, we know there's widespread corruption through the Russian system, and that goes goes for log- the logistics system as well. So maybe the stuff's been sold, but it's, it's not working. If you think about, uh, I mean, the way to the way to defeat ERA is by having two warheads in the missile that comes in. One blast then sets off the ERA, and a, you know, a microsecond later, the second blast then goes through the exposed hull or turret. Um, now, some of the munitions that are being fired at Russian tanks only have one warhead, so they should be defeated by era and they're not they are not they are not being defeated they're getting through they're knocking out all these tanks so era is not working um i don't think i've seen any evidence at all of any era that has worked caveat there of course it's mainly ukraine that's putting out on social media uh, footage of these attacks and they are unlikely to post footage of an unsuccessful attack against a tank if the era did work that said I just don't think it is. I just don't think this stuff is working properly. I don't think it's, it's either there, it's been taken out and sold, or it's just not been maintained and, it, and, it, and it's not working. So DI, UK Defence Intelligence, were, were suggesting that, that the failure of ERA has been a, a one of the prime factors in uh, Russia's loss of, I think the latest estimate is, is almost 2,000 tanks, I mean, countless other armoured fighting vehicles and infantry carriers and what have you, but just the tanks alone, I think they're getting close to about two thousand, um, and they yeah. So when you see this old old expression ERA, that's uh, explosive reactive armour that goes on the outside of the tank, uh, on the hull and the turret. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dom. Do you have any other updates for us, or shall we welcome Val? Well, just very quickly. So just to just to finish off what the the Western official was saying, he was briefing on um, on the Black Sea Fleet and saying the Black Sea Fleet is essentially in terms of military effect is nullified it lost its flagship moskva many many uh, weeks ago they've lost control of snake island and in the attack on saki airfield the western official says that over half of the naval aviation assets as in the planes were destroyed so the black sea fleet is largely a spent force um i mean it's still got a lot of caliber missiles that we see occasionally being fired into um odessa and the south of the country so it's not it it's not that it doesn't have any military effect but it, it looks like the potential threat to Odessa has largely been removed. Um, and just finally on Zaporizhia, on the nuclear power plant, so you would have seen the the shocking warnings, Ru- Russia warning that Ukraine is about to launch a strike today or tomorrow on Zaporizhia, which we are largely interpreting as a, as a possible false flag attack, which would be very, very concerning. The Western official says that Zaporizhia has now become symbolic to both sides um, because they both sides know that there's a worldwide audience looking at this in the same way as there was Snake Island was symbolic and had the world's attention and the grain issue uh, equally symbolic and the world's attention was drawn to that. We now have the same with the nuclear issue and both sides are trying to create the conditions for the other side to take the blame. Um, and in particular, although it's, it's extremely unlikely that anybody would be stupid enough to fire directly at the directly at the power plant but but the western official was saying there's particular concern about threats to the power supply which could impact the cooling uh, units and the, and the vital 
sort of electrical supply to that that side of the of the plant much as we spoke about a couple of a couple of days ago with with our um uh, our correspondent dan capuro uh, so yeah so so great concern there about zaporizhia um and finally 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 it was talking about the these whatever they are partisan slash special forces attacks and whether or not in any any sham um uh any sham vote in the uh, russian occupied areas of of ukraine for luhansk um donetsk or the kherson region to become part of russia if there were attacks in those areas by ukraine after such a uh, an illegitimate vote would russia deem that to be an attack on russian soil which we know is is viewed very as an escalatory measure and and the view from the western official was was no we don't think russia would view it as such um given the uh just given the the, the sort of pinpoint nature of some of these attacks in in crimea um and the fact that ukraine said that they're not going to change their posture after any any kind of ridiculous vote in these areas so we don't think that even if russia claims to have incorporated these regions into the country as a whole any continued assault there would be deemed too provocative but um you know we're trying to second guess russian thoughts here which is which is always a um a dangerous game well thank you very much uh dom nichols uh there it's um well, very happy to introduce, reintroduce actually, uh, Val Voschewski. Val, you've spoken to us a few times before, fairly early on in this uh, podcast's life. Um, Val is an independent activist. Uh, she co-founded uh, Ukrainian Spaces. So if you're looking for more Twitter Spaces and podcasts to listen to, I highly recommend Ukrainian Spaces, co-hosted by Val. And she's an activist with Women's March uh, Ukraine. Val, for our listeners who maybe haven't heard you since you, you were on a, f- a few months ago, can you just reintroduce yourself again? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to the last few months. Uh, yeah, so I think you've given quite a, a, a good introduction of who I am, but I'm Val, I'm Ukrainian from Kiev originally, I live in London at the moment, um, and I'm also, apart from the things that you've outlined, I'm an audience strategist and sort of a social media manager in my previous life, having worked for um, Newsweek and Amnesty. So at the moment, I'm focusing on helping Ukraine um, independently and helping some civil society organizations in Ukraine to fundraise as well as just in general, um, do a little bit more educational work around Ukraine to Western audiences, but also audiences within Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, I was just and I know you'll ask me about this later, but um, uh, I was just in Ukraine last week and I'm now back to London. So just in, in the process of processing a lot of things um, since I've returned. So that's that's what I've been doing. And, and um, yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about that? How, how did you get back and um, what, what did you see? Where, where did you go? Um, I mean, we've got so many questions, um, but maybe start with that. How did, you, how did you actually get back into the country? Yeah, of course. Um, so I was actually, everyone was asking me this before, but I was in London when on the 24th of February when everything kicked off and I was lucky enough to have my parents here with me who came to visit me for a couple of uh, days actually for a week before um, they came with their little you know suitcase uh, for holiday but ended up staying here permanently as things kicked off Um, and this was my first time going back since the beginning of the full-scale invasion 
Um, I was actually visiting my friend because a lot of my friends are it, it displaced, obviously, in, in Poland and in a lot of other places around Europe and outside of Europe. Um, but I was visiting my friend in Poland just to see how she is and, and how life looks like um, for her. She escaped as well from Kiev in the early days of, of um, February when everything started really escalating. So it was really important for me to spend some time with her. But I also... Um, Always, I, I've, as I'm, I'm sure if you speak to quite a few Ukrainians, uh, we'll all say that sort of going back home has always been a, an extremely important goal for many of us who haven't been back since um, everything started. So I essentially, after visiting her in Krakow, um, took a train to Lviv. Um, and the, the train journey that everyone does to the border and then the switch over there and then um, the train from from the Polish-Ukrainian border to Lviv. Um, and it was actually, um, I don't know if other people had the same experience, but it was a really interesting experience for me because it felt like everyone on the train was like a friend. Everyone was talking to each other. Everyone was, you know, sharing their stories. Everyone was sort of helping each other. And it was, it was a very... Um, interesting and hopeful first experience of Ukraine again, even in this context of, you know, pain and suffering within the country. But it just it just really um, was was um, interesting to see how people ha interacted with each other, with me, how I interacted with people. Um, and it really, you know, everything that we've been seeing in the media, but also, you know, just in general from interactions with Ukrainians, like to me came true on that trip, on that journey uh, across the border. And it was just really nice to see. What kind of stories did you hear, um, and, and how did it feel for you going back to going back to to your home for the first time? So, I'll start with your second question. Um, for me, I was extremely worried and anxious um, in the run up to going to Ukraine, and I spoke to a friend of mine as well who's been to a lot of different um, sort of countries at war and at, at, in active war in the context of active war, and he said that actually before you go is always the most nerve-wracking uh, part of, of, of journeys like this which I really felt and um, I was actually waiting I was gonna do the trip and initially with my parents as well so they were gonna meet me in, in Krakow and then we would drive but um, they were delayed and and just this anxiety before going back home was completely eating you know me alive and I, I just booked a ticket the next day and I was like I need to go I just need to rip the band-aid off and and see what it's actually like there for myself. I was, of course, you know, scared, unlike people who probably, people who escaped Ukraine after the full-scale invasion, I think they had a bit more understanding, not much more understanding of what the country was like. But for me, I was just, I just didn't know what to expect. And that was really, you know, anxiety-provoking for me. So that's why I just booked a ticket and decided to, um, to, to, as I said, rip the bandaid off and see for myself and experience Ukraine for myself. And and as my friend who who explained this to me uh, said, you know, it was completely once I crossed the border, like the feeling completely passed, and it just felt really, um, you know, wonderful to be back home and to be with with Ukrainians in Ukraine. And so um, the stories that I heard, actually, loads of interesting stories. Um, I think I'll highlight one. And uh, my favorite stories, I was, uh, this was already as I crossed the border. So the train between uh, Poland and Ukraine after the border. Um, and I sat next to this eight-year-old Roma girl uh, whose name was Alona. And she wanted to just chat to me. She was like, 
what's your name? Where are you going? What's your story? And she was really cute. She was asking me loads about, I was asking her where she's going. And she said, I'm going to Ukraine. Uh, and I was like, okay, where in Ukraine are you going? And she was like, well, you know, this place, Ukraine, um, it, I, I live in Ukraine and there's this, my house has this uh, sort of, my house has this blue door that is slightly broken at the moment, but that's Ukraine, that's Ukraine. And I was like, okay. She was, she basically was just really sweet and told me all her life stories and, and told me about what she loves to cook. And she only spoke Ukrainian. So I had to really like brush off my, my Ukrainian quickly. Um, she was asking me loads of things about like, what do I like cooking? And then I asked her and she was like, I love to cook bush. Uh, as an, and it was really interesting to hear this from her as an eight-year-old. So uh, that was a really sweet encounter. And she she sat with me the whole time. Um, and her mother, obviously, and, and siblings were there. And they were also going back home. And she told me that her father was actually in the army, um, fighting in the army and, you know, protecting Ukraine. And it was just really nice to hear, you know, everything from the perspective of a child. And it just really, like, calmed me down as well when, when I was going back home. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, there were a few others, but I mean, everyone was just sharing their experiences. There was a woman from Kharkiv who was also with me in the same like carriage and we, we started talking and she's moved to Kiev now. Um, a lot of people are either moving to Kiev or coming back from like Lviv to Kiev because, um, a lot of people are starting to think about like actually starting new lives already which I think is quite hopeful as well and like where are most opportunities to like start business or to go to work and and it seems like Kiev is really because of that starting to revive um as a city so what were your what were your experiences when when you got to Kiev itself um I mean I'm, I'm curious to know if you're okay talking about it when did you first start seeing the signs of the conflict what did you see um well, so, really good question. I actually, so my parents ended up meeting me in, in Lviv a couple of days later. And in Lviv, I had a really, I actually have been to Lviv maybe twice before. Um, so like in my whole life. And, and it was just really interesting to see how the city lived. And I actually went um, again with, with my friend who was there um, to one of the hospitals that has all of the sort of civilian patients there and we actually ended up going to one of the wards to talk to people and and sort of um you know meet some people who um were you know suffered from bombings and things like that who had amputations or were were you know waiting uh, to see what was going to happen with them and and that was the first time i was like whoa okay now it feels real you know people's stories like there was a woman from avdivka there was um Another man who just came to the hospital was obviously, you know, he came to the hospital two days prior to that from the Donetsk um, region. And it was just, you know, really hit me then. And so as we were uh, driving to Kiev, where I'm, yeah, I met my parents in, in Viva and we drove to Kiev. I, last time I was in Kiev, by the way, was in January right before everything kicked off, I was planning my wedding um, in August in, in the center of the city. And so, you know, this was quite, it was quite emotional for me to go back. Um, it, what was it? August? August. And so um, apart from this hospital visit, the second time I was like, whoa, and Kiev, obviously for me, you know, I used to go back every couple of months. And as we were driving into Kiev, and I'm sure people who have done the same thing, uh, will understand, but the Zhutomir um, uh, highway what is just really intense to see. And it, it's sort of like you have this like dissonance because you're like, 
I'm home and yet I'm seeing these destroyed buildings and destroyed, I mean, like civilian buildings and, and, and shopping centers and everything. It was just like you could see it, it, And for those who don't know, Zhitomir basically highway is the part that the Russian troops that did get sort of close to Kiev, that's where they had their time destroying things and killing people. And it was like on the way to Bucha and Irpinin. So yeah, that was, you know, it hit, it hit me hard when I saw a lot of those things. And, um, but then again, as soon as you drive into Kiev, the, the, the mood sort of changes and you see people on the streets and cars. And the only thing that will probably give it away is that there's like a little bit less people and that the statues are like um, covered. So you can't see them with like sandbags and, and other things that protect the statues around uh, the monuments and statues around Kiev. Um, but apart from that, it it's straight away like it was this like you go from seeing this mass destruction on the highway to going back into the city and the city is sort of how you remember it more or less with a few changes. But um, I also am very aware that, you know, whenever I say that Kiev is getting back to normal, I know that there's a lot of places that aren't. And so it's also this sort of almost, I don't know, guilt for for even thinking in in this way of like wow i'm i'm so happy kiev is going back to the way that it was but um just being aware that you know the war is very far from over and the thing that you could really notice as well from having conversations with people and and so on and you know within kiev was that you can really see like the the men who have gone to join the army some of my friends have gone you can see really like a big gap in 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 having those people around you know the people that you're used to having around a lot of them are fighting and it just brings you back to sort of reality as well and obviously the air raid sirens um every so often when i was there a couple of the days it was like every two hours i think there was one day that it was like every two to three hours and that really also reminds you that like everything's not okay which um i think the other thing and maybe you'll ask me about this later but i think the thing i realized when i left ukraine was the amount of pressure that people are under constantly because it's like it's if people are are particularly in Kiev they're like trying to live life the way that they can but there's always this like layer of uncertainty and anxiety that like covers that on top of your daily life because you just don't know what's going to happen at at any moment and i was talking to some friends as well and they're like yeah we've all become like fatalists you know whatever whatever happens happens and we'll just have to deal with it um which i think is like a very different mood to how it was in the beginning at least from my conversations with people thanks very much uh, for that val i just just like to echo something you said about coming in on the jotomir highway um that's that's the route dom and i um took to, to go into kiev a few weeks ago and it's it's exactly what you say isn't it it's a sort of ghostly experience as the light falls of the the ruined houses and the ruined sort of yeah um bridges and everything sort of looming out of the darkness and Dom I don't know if you want to add to this at all but we our, our, our guide who was sort of taking us through there did, did sort of mention oh, yes, the tanks got to this point and then then they were stopped and he gave us a sort yeah. of yeah it was it was it was very very eerie um what what was what was different to, to what to, to what you maybe expected about going back and was there anything that surprised you about what you found in, in Ukraine that's a really good question well um I think, I mean, Kiev less so. I think Kiev was pretty much what I expected. I think Lviv was very different. Um, I, 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 and I, don't, this is probably not 
I mean, Lviv is like living life and, and, you know, there's restaurants open and, and everything's open and people are there. There's like, including like, which I think to a degree is probably problematic, some tourists there from outside of Ukraine and things like that. And, and like Lviv really surprised me when I first arrived, I was like, whoa, this is like not what I expected because everyone's like out and about doing their own stuff and, you know, living life as, as though nothing happened. Um, that's first kind of thing for me. And then the second thing, I don't know, I expected people to be a bit more um, kind of, you know, I don't know if, if you guys had the same experience, but like with the air raid sirens at first, people, I, I just expected people to be like going to bomb shelters or, you know, hiding and things like that. But actually, like at this point, at least in Lviv and Kiev, obviously not in other places, but people are like really almost like relaxed about a lot of these things. And, and I was feeling a bit like uneasy about it. Um, but that was that was the second thing. And then of the last thing that I did not expect is, and I think for me, the moment it hit me is when I walked into my house, like my family home, it was just the same as in January before, you know, like everything was the same. And I think when you go into like your room, you know, like, and it was like my childhood room and you see like everything the, the way that it was, but you know that it's not the same because of what is happening in the country. It's like, it really is like a weird feeling that I can't really explain but that was really surprising to me because I thought everything was different you know like I thought everything would be different everything I experienced before would change but it actually didn't and um that that was I think what was quite tough as well it was a good feeling and a tough feeling at the same time um if that makes any sense I think so yeah um can I ask what what was it like meeting meeting your your friends and and your your loved ones um when you went back what 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 kind of things did you talk about and was there anything that they said that you 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 had to process or what <clears throat> was it almost like slipping back into into old times with them well i think i'm still processing a lot of things you were asking me before when we were chatting like yeah talk a little bit about how you're processing what you've experienced and i i i do have to say like i'm it's been a week since I've been back and, and it's been quite intense. Like there's been a lot of thoughts and feelings and emotions that have like come all at once. And I'm just taking some time out to really process how I felt, how I feel. Um, but I think in terms of meeting family and friends, it was obviously, you know, my family, some of them left and then came back um, since the beginning of the war. But my uncle was there the whole time. Um, and we went to see him and he was just, you know, the one thing I noticed is that people really do want to share their experiences. And I don't know if that's just people I was around, but people do really want to talk about what they went through, which I think is actually healthy. It, it would have been way worse if people didn't. Because, uh, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, should I ask? Should I not ask? Like, do I, do I want to like re-traumatize them uh, and things like that? But what I found was that people did want to talk. Well, at least, as I said, my uncle and, and family members and friends about what they went through, how it was, what they experienced, what they saw, what they heard. Um, so I guess that was really interesting for me and, and yeah, therapeutic as well to see that that they were opening up and not bottling up all these emotions and thoughts and, and feelings. Um, and then just really thinking about as well, you know, people do really believe that they, I mean, people do want to stay in Kiev. People do want to rebuild in Kiev um, and you know not many people who are there now want to ever leave again 
even those who left before. So I thought I think that was quite interesting to hear um, and 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 see. And then, uh, yeah, the, the thing that I said was like this, like fatalistic approach to life sort of was quite interesting for me to 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 hear from people that like basically like you know if if, if something happens it happens and we'll have to deal with it because as we saw you know like we can't predict how um certain individuals behave in this world so we might as well just you know take it one step at a time and and that was really interesting to hear from people who are there like 24 7 but i do you know i do wonder this like constant level of low-key pressure I do wonder like how it's having an effect on everyone because I I really felt it when I left Ukraine. I was like, you know, as soon as I crossed the border, I was like, I don't know why. Not that like I obviously really want to go back and it was amazing. But you just realize that people are like operating under a constant um, feeling of, you know, unease, if that makes sense, even if it doesn't show. No, absolutely. I've, I've heard very, very similar things from quite a few people we've been speaking to. Um, when, when you were, when you were leaving, when you, when you crossed the border and you're, you're heading back to London, um, what did you make of your experience there? How did you, how, how was it readjusting to your, to your life? How is it readjusting to your life in London? Do, do you, do you feel changed by this? A hundred percent. And you know what, what, um, and uh, this might not be a popular thing to say, but, you know, and I'm sure many people have said something similar in relation to guilt before. I think many of us who were abroad, uh, particularly those who were abroad even before everything happened, before the 24th of February, uh, we were experiencing quite significant guilt about not doing enough, not saying enough, not, um, yeah, not, 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 you know, stepping up to, to protecting our country. And, you know, life kind of stopped in a way because if we did things that were not to help Ukraine and Ukrainian people, it felt really selfish. And what I think really changed for me this time around was going to Ukraine and seeing that people are actually trying to live their lives, even if it, you know, people are trying to take time out to do routine things, trying to rebuild how how they you know spend their days and 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 things like that and it really it it kind of felt like it was like okay for me it it feels like it's now okay for me I'm obviously not forgetting about Ukraine not stopping doing what I'm doing but it it I can now take time out for myself as well to recharge and because I I saw that people back at home were doing that and it wasn't like this constant people weren't living constantly in in horror and and you know, awfulness. They they were actually trying to do things that made life feel normal, um, which is what I think I will feel less guilty about doing now. What what whilst I'm you know outside of Ukraine. Um, so that was my one of my biggest takeaways. Thanks, Val. Just two, just two questions from me, and then I'll ask Dom if he he has any as well. Um, one is, <clears throat> I mean, it's it's been it's been a it's been talked about in the media. I think the past couple of weeks of. Um, people in Europe and further abroad starting to lose interest in in the war. You know, it, it appears slightly less in the newspapers and online. How how do how do you think um, we we can fight that? What how do <clears throat> what would you say to the people who are starting to lose interest? Well, I th- I think you're totally right that it it is happening, and I think a lot of Ukrainians have struggled with coming to terms with that. Um, I guess it's an 
I mean, unfortunate but natural progression of how people's attention spans, op- like how people behave in terms of their attention spans. So it's it's been quite tough for a lot of us to come to terms with it. And, you know, like sometimes you're sitting there like, I, I, I think I, I tweeted about it the other day, like, is, is my content just not good enough? Is it me being shadow banned on Instagram or have people just lost interest in, in what's happening? And I think actually, well, maybe today's quite a good example, I think, of how we can bring people's attention back to it. Because I think, Dom, when you were talking about the sort of, you know, hard facts of what's happening and sort of the military strategies and things like that was really interesting for me personally to to listen to, but I'm sure for a lot of other people as well. And then having, you know, someone like myself or other Ukrainians also bringing the human aspect of like life in Ukraine and, and people's feelings and emotions and how it affects everyday life for people in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine, and the stories of people who you meet. Bringing those two together to me seems like the best sort of way forward for for what we're trying to do. And it's going to be tough. Like, I think what we need to accept is that it's going to be tough to bring back attention in the same way that um, we did have it on Ukraine. But um, I think we just need to keep doing what we have been doing. And, and, and also, the other thing is just, this is more a message for, I guess, fellow Ukrainians, is that obviously... You know, this constant pressure, constant feeling of guilt, all of these things have, have made us really sort of tired almost, which is natural, right? Like burnt out, tired and all of these things. So I even I even feel that way. Like I, I don't really at the moment, I'm like, I really want to continue doing my work. And I, I've been doing a lot of like educational work on my Instagram and, and Twitter and things like that. And I just don't have ideas about what else I, I can talk about right now to bring people's interest back. But I think what we also need to acknowledges that we need to like recharge a little bit as well and and you know the ideas and all those tools to bring the attention back to Ukraine will come we just need to um you know take some time to think about ourselves as well as 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 um as tough as that might be i think that's also one of the sort of lessons of my trip back home that i've 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 learned that you know if we keep going the same way that we've been going, like we're going to not be able to continue for much longer. And now we're all realizing that it's going to be a long-term thing. So taking some time out to really think about what we're doing and how we're doing it is super important. Um, so, yeah. Thanks, Bob. Just one more question from me. Having having been back and seen and traveled across the country and been to Kiev and seeing your friends and family and seeing the atmosphere uh, in Ukraine, what would you want people listening who haven't been um, or who've never been, um, what would you want them to understand about Ukraine right now? Well, I think a lot of things, obviously, and we've been doing a lot of these, you know, a lot of us Ukrainians have been talking about a lot of um, different sort of aspects of Ukraine and being Ukrainian. And and I think for people who haven't been or who, who are not going there yet, it's just... I mean, going back to your question prior to this is like, you know, keep focusing on Ukraine, even if it seems like life is going back to normal. uh, Well, it isn't for a lot of people in Ukraine, but I mean, in in some areas it is, um, even though that's what you may be seeing or hearing from people like me and others. It doesn't mean that people in other parts of Ukraine are not still, you know, experiencing extreme levels of of violence and war and Russia's not stopping what they're doing they're just changing tactic and you know it's it's just really important to 
not be well first that is not to be but seeing that life continues doesn't mean that the war is less intense that's one thing and then the other thing is um also i and this goes back to kind of you know a lot of people criticizing you some people some western people i've seen uh, and this was also you know one of the criticisms for the vogue cover of uh, olena zelenska that like you know there's a war raging and people are dying. Meanwhile, like the first lady is doing God knows what and doing photo shoots. But it's like what I want people to realize is that we need to do things as well that are not related to the war that might seem, well, you know, we need to continue doing routine things with our lives that are not, we can't be fully 24-7 doing only things related to the war and sitting and suffering and, and crying in a corner. We actually need to be able to recharge and we need to be able to do things with our lives and in our lives that that can help us like restore our energy to continue um fighting and to continue sort of you know going against russian authoritarianism in all its forms and uh, just i i would ask western people to not judge us for whatever we do and however we behave and whatever we do with our lives because uh, you know we're at a point in time where it's been six months and we need to be able to be empowered uh, and supported in, in deciding what we do with our lives moving forward and not judged by, by different people. Well, thank you very much, uh, Val, for all of that and for answering our questions. Um, Dom, you've been listening to this. Um, do you have any questions for Val? Yeah, thanks, David. Hi, Val. Just, just uh, a quick one, if I may. There's a really interesting article this week in The Economist that talks about the the toll on mental health for Ukrainians in the country and, and elsewhere. And it refers to the, the government is trying to, even in these early days, trying to provide services and, and money to, to help in this regard. And I just want to, Val, if you could give us a feel for whether or not you, Ukraine society will res respond in that way, and that sort of government down, provide money through programmes, or is, is, it, is it sort of a, a much more of a, a self-help type um, community-based um, work that will that will help us all get get through this and help the Ukrainians get get through this and and just finally if that's the case and is that kind of mainly happening in the sort of younger cohorts how do you reach the the older people yeah well I think the topic of mental health is such an important one and I'm, I'm not sure that it's being discussed enough and maybe right now is not the time but I do think it is um, one thing I would say and I'm only speaking from personal experience because I don't like to generalize but from my experience I have experienced before even before the war just in general as a Ukrainian I've experienced sort of uh, mental health being stigmatized in 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 Ukraine and um, I, I don't think we're at a point in time where people are fully aware of um, the fact that this is going to have extreme consequences for a lot of us um, for a long period of time uh, into the future. And so I would just like to start with that to say that, like, I think Ukraine is still, as a lot of sort of um, countries in Eastern Europe, where, you know, there's still this, like, attitude sort of to keep your emotions within you and to not, you know, deal with trauma and things like that. Whilst there's a lot of, of course, work being done and a lot of people are, and like, as you say, younger generations are starting to talk about it, it's still not acknowledged 100%. And I think I was actually thinking about this when I was talking about this, like, low key, constant level of pressure that people are experiencing. I think that's going to have the biggest impact on people, to be completely honest. Yes, of course, the trauma and the experience of, you know, seeing bombs fly 
across, you know, over your building and things like that is going to be very significant as well. But I also think the constant low key pressure that people are experiencing in their day to day lives is going to have a massive impact for for a while, uh, for many years to come. And so I think it has to be a combination of the things that you said, right? Like a government approach. It shows that the government is acknowledging the consequences that the war is having on people's mental health, but also from, you know, civil society initiatives from, as you said, bottom up. We um, at Women's March, we have, for example, from the very first days of the war, we had a um, mental health helpline for women. Um, and we're actually getting a lot of requests for, for from women to to speak to psychologists and things like that for you know first mental health first aid uh, sort of um, what is it called yeah m- mental health first aid uh, kind of uh, sessions. Um, but I do think that a lot of people, some people are acknowledging the consequences that this will have on mental health. A lot of people are not, um, and I do think that it needs to be a combined effort, uh, as you said of. Uh, top-down and, and bottom-up um, approach to get people to really start paying attention to uh, not just, you know, their bodies, but their minds as well. Well, thank you, Dom, and thank you, uh, Val, for, for all of that. Um, it, I think we're starting to run out of time, so I'll just ask um, both of you for your final uh, thoughts. Um, Dom, potentially, if you want to talk a little bit about um, strategically and tactically what people should be thinking of uh, in the uh, in the next few days over the weekend. And Val, um, if, it would be great to hear a little bit about Ukrainian spaces and how people can, can listen to that. Well, I'll be very quick so that Val can have the, have the last word. I mean, keep your eyes on Zaporizhia. There is this suggestion from Russia, a caveat is from Russia, that uh, Ukraine are about to attack either today or tomorrow, which could be a false flag attack by Russia anyway, but keep because that, because of the potential consequences there of an, of an attack on a nuclear power station that that deserves demands all our attention. Um, and finally, the, the, the other attacks that have happened in the last 24 hours in, in Crimea, there's no suggestion these are going to stop. I was wondering yesterday on the, on the podcast whether or not the the military effect and the psychological effects was enough for whatever the team is that's there um, to consider it mission accomplished and, and head off. But it, it seems not. And the, the Western official we spoke to earlier on was saying that these are a powerful statement by Ukraine's uh, or a powerful statement of Ukraine's ability um, to operate in that way. Uh, and he, he specifically mentioned there's an uptick of unexplained events over the last two weeks and there's no sign of that slowing down. So so keep an eye on these on these small scale attacks behind the lines and um, and definitely keep your eye on Zaporizhia over this weekend. Thank you, Dom. Um, Val Vashevsky, would you like the final word? Thank you so much, David. And th- yeah, once again, thank you for inviting me back. It's um, As I said, this is the first time I've actually like spoken to anyone publicly about my experience of going back home. Um, so it was therapeutic for me as well. Um, but yeah, as always, you know, one of the best ways um, to keep people paying attention to Ukraine, in my opinion, is to keep elevating the voices of Ukrainians, um, Ukrainian journalists and civil society leaders and activists and everyone, anyone um, with experience of Ukraine and with knowledge of Ukraine, which we all have. Uh, it's super important to keep um, paying attention to our opinions and our work. Uh, which is what um, essentially Ukrainian Spaces, the podcast and, and network that um, I co-founded uh, together with Maxim Yurestavi, um does. So uh, as well, you can listen to us. We're actually launching season two on 
Wednesday. Um, you can listen to season one. We have over 32 episodes already uploaded with different people from different backgrounds, all Ukrainian, talking about Ukraine and, and their experiences um, as well of, of living in Ukraine, growing up in Ukraine, but uh, also touching upon really interesting topics, everything from literature um, to art to activism. Um, so yeah, and first episode of season two will be on Wednesday on Twitter spaces as well. So please watch out for that. And we're also a hundred percent volunteer initiative that is funded by our uh, patrons on Patreon. Um, it's pinned, I think to my profile as well. So if anyone wants to listen to us and support us, um, yeah, just find all the links on my profile. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.